So today, um, we're going to be continuing through our series um, through the book of Acts. And we have uh, the blessing of honor of being blessed to hear the preached word from one of our committed members, Tylon. So you guys would welcome Tylon this morning as he comes to bring the preached word. I'm just, you know, just a little shorter than Josh, so I need to pull this down a little bit. Good morning, guys. Man, I was kind of hoping the clouds would stay just so that it would stay a little cooler, but flummoxed again by the weather. Um, as Josh said, my name is Tylan Pervenecki. I'm one of the members here at King's Cross. Uh, I'm also a missionary with the Navigators to College Students at UC San Diego. That's my full-time job, and I love it a whole lot. Um, I really believe that um, God will use college students to advance his kingdom um, into the nations and so I love college students. I also kind of never really grew up, so I'm always a college student at heart. So it's the perfect job, you know? Um, yeah, has anybody, just to kick off with a little crowd participation, is anybody watching the NBA Finals right now? Has anybody been keeping up with it? Yeah? Hands? Some hands? No? Maybe just a few. I should have picked a different starting point then. Uh, I have a confession to make. I know we're in Lakers country, but I am a diehard Miami Heat fan. So I hope you guys will show me grace and not kick me out of the church. Uh, but I was born and raised in Florida. I am the rumored Florida man. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen any of those, uh, those news stories before. Fun fact, uh, I always thought, oh, these are fun. And then I was reading one about a guy who threw an alligator through a Wendy's drive-through window. And then I looked at where it was and it was like five miles from my house and I was like, Mm, cool. <laughs> anyway, I'm from Florida, so I'm I'm a, a big Miami Heat fan, um, and something that's really cool that I think is really neat about the Miami Heat. Um, some of you guys might not, but they have developed this really awesome basketball culture um, within uh, the Miami Heat franchise. Uh, they are known for being really hard nosed and putting in the work. Um, their like lead player, who's their veteran player, who's been around for forever. His name is Udonis Haslam. He's been with the Heat for like 20 years, um, and he's still there. And he's like the guy who influences the culture of the locker room. And then their like all-star player, Jimmy Butler, who had a triple double on Friday. I'm, I was super stoked about that. I really got Jimmy Butler. He gets up at like 4 a.m. every morning and tells all of his, his teammates to get up at 4 a.m. for workouts every single morning. That's the kind of culture they have. Their head coach, Eric Spolstra, he started out in the video room. He worked his way up to be the first Asian American head coach in the NBA. They're all about like coming from nothing and working hard to get what, what they're going for. Their culture is noticeably different than the rest of the NBA. Every NBA player works hard. But when you go to Miami, people know like you've really got to work because this is like, like that's what Miami's about. And they're all about keeping the main thing the main thing. Um, I think Jimmy Butler in his press conference after after their win, go Heat. Uh, he said, uh, like for us, it's the only option is win or win. That that's all that that's all that there is. And so they're really good at winning basketball games. The Miami Heat built a culture, a culture that's noticeably different and incredibly effective. Sorry, this is still a little high for me. There we go. Um, and then they built their team around that culture. They look for guys who fit the culture to expand it. And this morning, we'll be focusing on another noticeably different and incredibly effective culture. Um, but it has far, more uh, far greater implications than just winning basketball games. 
we'll be looking at the significant, uh, we'll be looking at one that has a real and significant impact on the advancement of the kingdom of God. And that's the culture of the church in Antioch. And my amazing wife, Katie, she's from Antioch, NorCal. That's not the Antioch we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about Antioch that's in modern day Turkey in the Roman Empire. So we'll be in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 20. And as we look at this community of believers, we'll be pulling out five keys to building a community that is God glorifying and kingdom of God advancing. Uh, God glorifying, kingdom of God advancing church culture. And then ask the question, what will it take for us here at King's Cross to do the same? What will it take for us to build a similar culture that can impact the world? But before we really dive in, I just want to go ahead and take a minute to pray. Heavenly Father, thanks so much that, um, as Josh said, we have the privilege of gathering here today um, in a way that um, the Lord just feels safe. And God, it's so good to see one another and be in fellowship. Lord, we praise you that Obed is coming soon. We look forward to the day that um, he returns with his family. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would just really open up our hearts. Would you open up my heart, um, as you have been this whole week, um, to really hear from, from you and your word. God, as we, as we look at this um, church here in Antioch. Okay, I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so as I said, our passage is going to be Acts 11, 19 through 30. As we turn there, I just want to give uh, just some quick background on the city of Antioch and the backstory uh, from Acts to how we got to where we are today. Um, yeah, am I not talking loud enough? No, I'm just going to turn it up. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I don't have a booming voice. Um, yeah, so Josephus uh, is a famous Roman historian or Greek historian. I don't know if he's Roman or Greek, actually, but he lived during that time. Uh, Josephus... Uh, called Antioch, the city of Antioch, the third city of the Roman Empire. Um, you had Rome, Alexandria was the second, and Antioch was the third. And to maybe put that into context, if you think of California as this large, sprawling empire, um, you have Los Angeles, you have maybe San Francisco, and then San Diego. Like this, this big port city, that's what, that's what Antioch was, this big port city where a bunch of cultures were melding and stuff, kind of like what we are here in San Diego. Um, so that's the city of Antioch. And then just to bring you guys up to speed, we heard from Jijo and Josh a couple weeks back about how like this gospel, which has been advancing, Jesus has ascended. This is the early church. And Jesus gave them a blueprint um, right before he ascended unto heaven, um, where he says um, that they're to preach the gospel, bring the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in this early part of Acts, we've seen the gospel expanding out of Jerusalem into the surrounding area of Judea and into the surrounding area of Samaria. And then Jijo and Josh introduced us to like the moment that the gospel began to spread to the ends of the earth um, with the first Gentiles, Cornelius the Roman centurion, coming to faith through Peter. Uh, and that brings us to where we are now, a continuation of this gospel uh, spreading to the ends of the earth. So let's go ahead and read Acts chapter 11. Verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them was named Agabus, who stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this is in the first passage where we get like an inside glimpse at one of the local churches in Acts. Um, we've talked about them before. We actually had a whole series called the Devoted Series earlier this summer where we like investigated church culture of one of the churches in Jerusalem. I'd really encourage you to go back because there, there's a little bit of overlap here between this one and that one. Um, but there's definitely some new tough stuff too. And with that, what is the first key component of building a God-honoring, kingdom-advancing church culture? that we can see here in the church of Antioch. And that's that this is a church that is excited to evangelize. It's a church that's excited to evangelize. And we see this almost right off the bat in, in verses 19 through 21. Uh, we see that there's like a persecution going on and that's the same exact persecution that we heard about a few months ago in Acts chapters seven and eight. Um, the same guy, Saul, um, who we see later in this, persecuted the church and drove the church out of Jerusalem and actually ended up helping to disperse the church, which was not his intention, um, and advanced it even further. And then Saul himself came to, came to faith, and that's why we see him later in this chapter. So it's the same persecution. So these people have been persecuted for sharing the faith, and they're fleeing, and as they flee, they share the gospel. And then they settle in Antioch, and they continue to share the gospel. And something like pretty like new to the story of Acts happens here. It says that they share the gospel with the Hellenists. And here, uh, the Greek word that's used there and the context of it makes it pretty clear that when they say Hellenists, they mean like Greek-speaking non-Jews, which is basically everybody except for Jews at, at the time in Antioch. So they were sharing the gospel um, with Gentiles. And this is the first time outside of Cornelius's conversion in the chapters earlier that we see people who are not Jews um, being brought into the kingdom of God, which is like absolutely incredible. And before we really pick apart these verses, I just wanna take a second to address the uncomfortableness that I feel like comes with evangelism. Because when I say excited to evangelize, like instead of excitement, I get like this little pit in my stomach. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I wanna do that. Um, and I think part of that comes from a misunderstanding of like what evangelism is. Uh, I tend, I, I have in the past tended to think like when I'm evangelizing, when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, when I'm evangelizing, I'm like trying to bring them into like Americanized Christian culture. And that's not what evangelism is. Um, evangelism is not recruiting someone to join Christian culture, but it's introducing them to the person of Jesus. Um, it's not recruiting someone to Christian culture, it's introducing them to the person of Jesus. Jesus, the son of God, the God of the universe who chose to come down, becoming a person like you and me, except he lived the life 
that none of us could live. He lived a perfect life. Um, and he died the death that we all deserve to die for our, own, for our own imperfection, for our own sin, for all that we've done wrong. He died one of the most horrific deaths imaginable on the cross, one of the most painful executions in history for our sake. And then three days later, he conquered all of, our, all of our wrong, all of our sin, all that we fear in death and was raised from the dead so that we, when we put our faith in him, we, we take on the perfect life that we live, even as we put our own sin onto him um, so that would die with him and that we can now have this relationship with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And when we evangelize, when we share, that's what we're sharing. We're introducing everybody to that person, the person of Jesus, the God of the universe who chose to do that for us, which is pretty incredible. So what's happening here in this passage, these people who have experienced persecution, they're still excited to and eager to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Why, why are they so excited? I think there's a couple of reasons here, but the first is because they themselves have been saved. They themselves have experienced the goodness of God and their own salvation. And last week we had the, like, the amazing privilege of hearing Sean Trawick's testimony. And I know for a fact, Sean, had, Sean and Savannah have like volunteered with the Navigators on campus. Um, and I know for a fact, just from talking with him, that Sean is just absolutely excited constantly to share his faith with people. Um, when he approached me, he's like, yeah, I wanna talk to college students who are like me so that they can experience the goodness of God like I did and his grace and in his mercy. And when we connect with like what God has done for us, that should compel us to be excited to share our faith with others like Sean is. So that's the first reason. But the second reason we see that they're excited to evangelize is, is Acts, we see in verse 21, where it says, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, would we not forget that God is with us in this task. Jesus is with us. In the great commission given to Jesus, uh, and given by Jesus to us and to his disciples in, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, before he tells them to, to go out and, and make disciples of all nations, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. All authority. He holds authority over every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every world leader. He has authority over them. And then he gives them the assurance that he is with us always to the end of the age. So if Jesus has all authority and he is with us, then of course we can have confidence in going to share our faith with those around us because we've seen the way, the way that he saved us and we know that his authority like crosses all boundaries and he is with us in this. And so like the believers in Antioch, let's remember our own story and remember the reality that God is with us as we share our faith and be bold and excited about evangelism, eager to see those who don't know Jesus enter into a relationship with him. That's the first component of building a kingdom advancing church culture. And the second is a little more hidden in this passage, but I think it's incredibly important. Um, and that's to be a church that is united through diversity. To be a church that's united through diversity. And we kind of see that, like that now that the now that the gospel has been opened to the Gentiles, it's inviting diversity into the church. And so these people are preaching to the Hellenists. They're preaching to Gentiles. People are coming to faith, and Jerusalem hears about it. The church in Jerusalem. They're like, "Oh, that's interesting. Let's go send a guy up there." So they send up Barnabas, 
um, Barnabas runs up and we see that uh, he was so excited to see the grace of God, to see the gospel moving into these diverse communities. Right, it says in, in verse 23 that when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He was excited. And that diversity, along with a few other factors we'll hit on, allows the church in Antioch to grow all the more because the church begins to reflect the, the diversity of the people around it. Because remember, Antioch is a super diverse city with tons of different cultures all mashing in one spot. And we see at the end of verse 24, the, the fruit that it yields, where it says that a great many people were added to the Lord because of their diversity. And not only is that diverse unity reflected in the body of the church, but also in its leadership. And if we jump ahead really quickly to Acts chapter 13, verse one, we get another really quick glimpse of the church of Antioch. And there's like a list of the, of the church leadership team there. And I just think this is really, really cool. Um, Acts 13, verse one, um, here's what it says. It says, now there, was, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, so the, the leaders of the church. You have Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Which that might just sound like a list of names, but let me kind of like break down what we know about each of these people. So Barnabas is from Cyprus. So he is a Jew, but he is a Jew from an island in, um, an island in the Mediterranean. So he's a little different. Uh, Simeon, who is called Niger, that literally means that he was called black. So Simeon is a black African who's leading this church community here. We have Lucius from Cyrene, a different place. And Menaean is a dude with some serious, serious connections. Herod the Tetrarch uh, was the ruler of the Judean um, province of, uh, of Rome. Um, and so he's friends with them. So he's like super high class. And then you have Saul, uh, who's a Jewish Roman citizen who's trained as a Pharisee. And so like it just in this leadership team, we see like a diversity of cultural, racial and socioeconomic diversity in the church. And they're all united in their love for Jesus and their love for one another. And this just gets me so excited to see that just because it's, it's just a small glimpse, a small window into what's coming in God's desire for his kingdom in Revelation 7, 9. It, it paints a picture of like what God desires for his like ultimate church to look like. When heaven and earth are united, that's what Revelation 7, 9 is talking about. And this is what it says. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Man, what, a, what an incredible image. And that image is reflected in the diverse community of Antioch. And I like, after like seeing that and thinking of that, like, man, I can understand Barnabas's excitement. He's going in, he's like, dude, like poor people are coming to Christ, rich people are coming to Christ, everybody from every like culture are coming to Christ in this city. Like I see the grace of God extending everywhere and he's just pumped, he's excited. And why shouldn't he be? I, I'd be excited too. to see a community of believers that's super diverse, but united by their love for one another and their love for God. That's the second key component to a God honoring, kingdom advancing church culture.
And thirdly, the church at Antioch has a culture where people are eager to exhort one another. They're eager to exhort and to encourage. Um, the, the name Barnabas literally translates to son of encouragement. So we shouldn't be surprised that the, the church that he's kind of like helping to found and lead, like builds a culture of encouragement. Um, but like it, it uses even stronger terms with the word exhort. It's like, like uh, encouragement on, in, on steroids. It's like the strongest form of encouragement. And Barnabas is setting the tone to create a culture of lifting one another up and of building up the people around them. And that's just different than the culture of the world that we see. Right? The world says to tear other people down to make yourself feel better. And it's so, so easy to do, even when we don't do it overtly, even when we don't walk around and just like, like are just mean to everybody around us. Like I do it like in my head all the time to make myself feel better. Like when I'm scrolling through my social media feed, like seeing like people's different opinions and stuff, I'm like, ooh, I'm better than all these people. Um, and then I'm looking at like comparing myself to like in, in photos and different stuff, like that's all like comparison and, and, and trying to tear people down in my mind for the sake of making me feel better. There's a, a navigator leader who I've had the, the privilege of like learning under a few times. He has this really, really deep, booming voice and he has this text, he has this like catchphrase that he uses and he always like walks right up and he goes, compare despair, compare despair. <laughs> it's a little catchy, but, but it works. Um, when, we, when we compare our lives, when we compare ourselves to the people around us, it either leads us to completely despair and just devalue ourselves because we're like, man, I don't measure up to these people, so like I'm worthless. Or we try to tear the other people down around us so that in our pride we can advance ourselves. And both are not what God has in mind for us. That's not what the, what the kingdom of God looks like. As a body of believers, we are called to be the exact opposite, to be utterly different than the world around us. Um, Saul, who later is called Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, writes, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. That's what we're called to do, to build up the people around us instead of tear them down, to seek their good instead of our own. And how do we do this? How do we encourage one another? Through the word of God. Like that's part of the whole reason that we gather here. We gather here to learn and to fellowship and to grow, but to encourage one another through God's word. Like that's the goal. So let's be a church that, that builds up rather than tears down, that looks, to, looks for opportunities to encourage instead of compare. And so we've seen that the church is called to be excited to evangelize, united through diversity, and eager to exhort one another. The fourth key component is to be a church that is devoted to discipleship. A church that is devoted to discipleship. And this, this is like, this is my wheelhouse. This is what the navigators are all about. They love person to person, one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Um, so if you ever, I, I could literally like talk for hours on this. I won't do that because it's hot. <laughs> uh, but this is, this is by far like one of my, one of my favorite things. Um, and we can see how devoted they are to discipleship in verses 25 and 26 of this passage. Right, so there's this amazing movement of God happening in Antioch and Barnabas is there and he's like, wow, this is awesome. And if you just like place yourself in Barnabas' shoes and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm like leading this church that's like growing tremendously and like think about what you would do. 
what Barnabas does is he's like, this is really great. I'm going to leave real quick and go to this other city and get Saul. Like, that's costly. He, he's saying, like, I'm going to, like, this is awesome, but I'm going to go get this guy uh, who I know is, like, an up-and-coming leader. I'm going to bring him in here. And by doing that, he's, he's actively discipling Saul. Disciple simply means a follower or a student. Right? The 12 disciples, the 12 apostles were, were following Jesus. They were students of Jesus. They learned at his feet. And Barnabas is doing the same thing with Saul. He brings him in to train him and to teach him. And you can't really like train like how to like grow in your faith, uh, how to share your faith with others just through like lessons and stuff. You have to be with them. And so Barnabas gets Saul and he's like, hey, won't you be like with me here in this church for a year? So you have the opportunity to learn from me, to follow me even as I follow after Christ. Discipleship is intentional teaching and relational teaching. It's intentional and relational. And like we said, discipleship is costly. It, it takes time. It doesn't always have an immediate impact. Sometimes you have to like forgo like what looks like the cool thing. Like if, if Saul or if Barnabas had stayed in Antioch, like maybe his church would have grown like in greater numbers. Like that's that's cool. And that, like, at, like when I see that from the outside, I'm like, yeah, I want that. I want to see King's Cross explode into like 500 people. That would be really weird. It would be new, but it'd be awesome. Uh, but discipleship has such a much greater impact in the long run. And we see that with Saul. And I think in large part because of what Barnabas does with Saul here, because he brings him in to a fledgling church and shows him how to raise up this diverse church community. We'll be, we'll be seeing how Saul will go forth and for the rest of Acts, the rest of Acts is basically Saul's story, where he plants dozens of churches all over the Roman Empire. And I think a huge part of that is because Barnabas decided that, like, instead of just going for big numbers and, like, stuff like that, I'm going to choose to pour my life into Saul and to watch him do the same. Like, only through di discipleship do you get true multiplication. We can do spiritual addition on our own. We can like bring somebody to faith, like bring somebody to Christ or bring somebody to church. That's addition. But only when you, only when you uh, reproduce your life into someone else, only when you like, like help them to grow in their faith and teach them to do the same with others, that's when you get spiritual multiplication. And 2 Timothy 2.2 gives us a blueprint for it. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Saul writes, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Right, spiritual addition, adding, just like adding with people, it ends with, with, with Saul. So he says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, this is what he's telling Timothy. Like it would just end right there with Timothy. But because he chooses to disciple Timothy and train him, it goes on from there. And he's like, hey, what you've heard from me, you'll be able to teach others also. And then like, you'll be able to raise, those others will be able to raise up so that they can teach others also. And you have this like multiplicative tree coming down from Saul into the nations, right? If Saul is just by himself, he can maybe bring like a hundred people to Christ. But if all those hundred people are also discipling others and bringing other people to Christ throughout their lives, like that just like expands, like it is just exponential growth through spiritual multiplication. And that's the power of discipleship. Dawson Trotman, the, the founder of The Navigator, is the guy who's like, we're going to be about discipleship. The question that he always asks is, where's your man? Where's your woman? Where, where's the person 
Where's your person? Where's the person that you are pouring your life into? Like if you're Barnabas, where's your Saul? If you're Saul, where's your Timothy? Who, are the, who is the person that you are going to reproduce through and like participate in spiritual multiplication? A church that is God-honoring and kingdom-advancing is one that is devoted to discipleship. All right, we're in the final stretch here, the seventh inning stretch. Uh, the last key component to church culture we see here in this passage is that it's a church that is given to generosity. A church that's given to generosity. And this one rounds out our passage with verses 27 through 30 where it says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And it tells us that this happened a little later on during the reign of Claudius. And so the disciples in Antioch, they're like, oh, there's gonna be this big famine. Like, let's like take a collection and send it to the churches in Judea and in Jerusalem. That's like pretty radical generosity when you think about it. Because what this prophet didn't say is like, there's gonna be a famine in Jerusalem, and so you guys should like help them out. He said, there's gonna be a famine everywhere, and everywhere includes Antioch. And they're like, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna like have radical generosity instead of hoarding our own, our own wealth to try and like make it through this famine. We're gonna give it away for the sake of the other churches in Judea. Like that's some, that's some incredible generosity. And we see examples of this generosity all over the book of Acts. Right, we talked about like the early church communities in Jerusalem, how they had everything in common, how people were selling their land to fund the church and to make sure that orphans and widows were taken care of, to, like, to, like, to, to be able to reach the marginalized because they're radical in their generosity. And in Acts and in the rest of the Testament, New Testament, we see like, this, that this theme continues that they're generous, the individuals are generous to support the church and individuals and, and churches are generous to support missionaries. And you read some of Paul's letters, some of them he's like, hey, thanks for that gift, by the way, that really helped me out. And others he's like, hey, would you guys be willing to like, fund me so that I can go to this new city and start a new church? You see that in Philippians and in Romans. So they're willing to support missionaries, missionaries and then they support those who are in need. They care for for the marginalized people, the orphan, the widow, for us, the, the foster care kids. Like that's generosity, being generous with, with our time, with our money, with everything that we have and giving it away for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of other people. We need to be a church that's given to generosity. So the five components of building a Christ-honoring, kingdom of God-advancing church culture that we see in this passage is to be a church that is excited to evangelize, to be a church that's united through diversity, a church that's eager to exhort one another, one that's devoted to discipleship, and one that's given to generosity. And just to kind of like bring it home here, this kind of begs the question, like what kind of church culture will we as a church build? Will we here at King's Cross, what kind of culture will we build? Because the culture of a church is composed of our individual actions, my actions, your actions, all of those come together to build the culture of our church community. What will you build here at King's Cross? Or at any church that you become a part of for that matter. 
and I, I could have reached, I, I thought about it actually, I could have reached the, preached the exact opposite of this sermon and titled it The Five Components of a Dysfunctional Church. And that's a church that never seeks to share its faith, but hoards the good news of the gospel. It's a church that's given over to gossip and, and comparison and constantly tearing others down, whether that's people in the church, outside of the church, other churches. That's a church that's divided rather than diverse, where the sin of racism and mistrust reigns because something other than love for one another and love for God is the primary thing, is the defining quality of the church. It's a church that's full of spiritual spectators instead of devoted disciple makers. And it's a church that's full of selfish and self-centered people instead of those who are generous of spirit. Right, those are the five building blocks to build an anemic, self-centered church. And I encourage you guys after this sermon to look at to look at the five, the, the five qualities of like a, a good growing church, the five qualities of a of an anemic church, and to just pick one to work on. Because the reality is none of us are perfect in all five, and it can be a little over, overwhelming to do all of them at the same time. So let, let's just pick one. For me, I think I need to work on being eager to encourage because I constantly find myself com comparing and, and complaining and gossiping and, and I've hurt so many people through, through the different things that I've done. And what is it for you? Let's be a church that, like the church in Antioch, is one that glorifies God and advances his kingdom. Let's grow into that. I'm gonna go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, for the way that your word instructs us and teaches us in the way that we should go and the way that it can cut us to the heart. Um, Lord, as you cut me to the heart as, as I was working through this. God, I pray that we would be a God-honoring, um, kingdom-advancing church. Lord, that through us, your kingdom would go forth um, into all of San Diego and into the nations, like at the Church of Antioch. Lord, would we see people come to know you? Would we see people accept this incredible gospel, this good news that you have given us, uh, by which many of us have been saved? Lord, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.